The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gabfest. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 1st, 2014, the What Does Congress Do All Day edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor-at-large of Slate, and I'm at large. In fact, I'm in Montpelier, Vermont, and I have special guests, as you'll hear in a second. Today, we're going to talk about why the war in Gaza is so much worse than anyone expected, then the secret Democratic plan to persuade Republicans to impeach President Obama, what are Democrats up to there, and we will talk about the last Mississippi abortion clinic Can it survive a ridiculous new state law designed to shut it? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, of course. And in Slate Plus, we'll have a discussion about pot reparations. What are those? We'll find out in a second. I also want to commend another Slate Plus feature to you. Orange is the New Black, great show, as you know, and it's in the second season. And we're doing a limited edition podcast series exclusive for Slate Plus members, which takes a deeper look at the show's really entertaining second season through the lens of economics and LGBT issues and sex and more. And in the latest episode, Willa Paskin, who's hosting that podcast, talks to Big Boo herself, the actress and comedian Leah Delaria, I hope I'm saying her name right, about her character, how she was cast, and the straight girl obsession with Big Boo. So you can get that if you sign up for Slate Plus and start listening to it today. You can go to slate.com slash gabfestplus to sign up, or you can email me directly, david.plots at slate.com, and get the best possible deal on Slate Plus. So we have an exciting lineup today because Dickerson and Bazelon both are on vacation, but who needs them when you have the, in the role of Emily Bazelon, the passionate, funny, liberal Slate staff writer, Jamel Bowie. Hello, Jamel. Hello. And also in D.C., in the role of John Dickerson, the <laughs> person who's going to be full of numbers, wise beyond her years, also funny, and also with superb hair, Annie Lowry, contributing editor of New York Magazine. Hello, Annie. I'm so happy to be here. I wish I had dyed my hair blonde. Both John and Emily have superb hair. They really do. You should be honored to be in their hair company. I am. So the war in Gaza is getting worse. This week, Israel bombed. Gaza's power plant causing blackouts and knocking out that region's uh, sewage plant as well, sewage treatment. Israeli shells also killed a bunch of children in a school shelter, and the total number of Palestinian deaths has climbed, I think, maybe about 1,500. I'm not sure if it's top that, but it's around that number. At the same time, Israel keeps discovering new tunnels that Hamas has dug into Israel and is trying to destroy all all of those tunnels. And Hamas is practicing a quite ghoulish and despicable form of warfare where they're endangering civilians, getting civilians killed in order to make Israel look bad and to bring the world's opprobrium against Israel. So no peace deal seems at hand. Even a ceasefire appears not really attainable. Historically, Jamel, this kind of operations in Gaza, this is the third, at least the third such operation, are pretty quick. This one appears to be elongated, and it also doesn't appear to be susceptible to the usual run of, of U- U.S. brokered ceasefires, Egypt and the U.S. acting in concert to wrap it up. Why is this one more intractable than the previous ones? I think it has something to do with the 
the apparent reality that I'm not sure the Israeli government really knows what it what it wants. I mean, Hamas at the moment Hamas is not going away, so you can't really bomb them out of existence. And the rockets that Hamas was firing, while um, certainly not good, aren't doing any any sort of substantive damage to Israel. There's not really additional safety you can gain. In some sense, they've already attained like the maximum amount of safety from um, Hamas attacks. And so at, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any political strategy that they're going for. There just seems to there. It just almost seems like they're I wouldn't say they're doing airstrikes for the sake of doing airstrikes and, and a ground incursion for the sake of doing a ground incursion. But in the absence of like some solution they're going for. I mean, I'm not sure what what happens next. I've been I, I had a conversation about this with a friend last night, and we both were sort of stumped by what what the end game here is. I'm not really sure anyone anyone quite knows. So, Annie, one reason why there is a little pressure for an end game, at least in Israeli domestic politics, is that this is a wildly popular military operation in Israel. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister's favorability ratings are around 90%. Every Israeli essentially favors this and believes it's a matter of national security. Are Israelis deluded about that? I think that from the Israeli perspective, right, and you're right, this is hugely popular in Israel. Uh, They believe that they're on the right side here. Where I think things could change is that this is becoming, you know, sort of an issue that that the politics are really changing in the United States. Israel is a terribly unpopular country. This is seen as essentially an aggression in which this kind of bizarre turn, but people are are siding not just with the Palestinians, but, you know, are putting less opprobrium on Hamas. It just seems so unfair and aggressive from the outside, given the body count. I was looking these stats up before I came. So Israel's GDP per capita is something like about $40,000 a year. In the Palestinian territories, it's like $1,500, right? So there's this just gaping economic chasm between the two of them as well. You know, the United States broadly still supports Israel, but the younger the person, the less likely they are to say that that Israel is doing the right thing and that the force is justified. And I think that that's really interesting is the United States has been such a stalwart ally of Israel. But going forward, it seems like the politics might change. And I think a lot of Americans are looking at this and are saying, oh, my goodness, like, why are all these Palestinian children dying? How is how is this fair? How is this accomplishing some sort of goal in the distant future? How is this not just making everything worse? Look, I'm not going to rise to defend the murder of Palestinian children or, or indiscriminate warfare. But the reason that casualties are so high on the Palestinian side, partly that Israel has, Israel has overwhelming firepower, but it's also that the governing force of this region has decided to put citizens, civilians in danger as much as possible, knowing that their deaths bring the world's scorn upon Israel and that they want this body count. As high, the higher the body count is on the Palestinian side, the better it is for Hamas. Think about how grotesque that is for a a government to put its own citizens in danger to have the more they are killed, the better off it it is for for them politically in the world. That's a horrific calculus. Gaza is run by a terrorist organization. It's run by a dangerous terrorist organization, which is tunneling under a border to attempt to infiltrate an enemy and and murder people. So it does seem to me that Israel has a a national security case for the Gaza part of the operation, where I think it gets, it's complicated is that Gaza is one part of 
of Israel's problem of the Palestinians. The West Bank is another. And in the West Bank, Israel's behavior is terrible and difficult and difficult to justify. And and I'm much more willing to sort of to stand and and defend the Gaza operation than I am to defend all of Israel's policies towards Palestinians generally. Part of the problem, right, is that if for as much as Israel does have a national security obligation to defend itself, knowing almost certainly knowing what Israel knows about how Hamas conducts its policies, there's sort of no way or it's very difficult to fulfill that obligation without also empowering the hardliners in Hamas. And so all disclosure and speaking as someone who does not write on this, who does not like get engaged in this because it's just like not my area of expertise. But it seems like this is a situation where it actually requires the Israelis to say we're not going to do X. We're not going to respond militarily in this way. It seems a little unfair, but just saying we're not going to take that step knowing that you would end up empowering the elements in in, uh, in Hamas or empowering Palestinian elements who would in turn call for reprisals after the fact, right? Like you, there needs to, you have to break the cycle somehow. And this might be just a situation where it's incumbent upon Israel to like just break the cycle. Yeah. And I think that, that your comments, Jamal, get to the really hard part about this, which is the conundrum facing Israel is how do you punish Hamas without punishing the Palestinians? Because I think that you're right that it's in there. It's in their interest to kill as few civilians as possible. They've, they've said repeatedly that they're trying to do that. And as you pointed out, David, like one of the most pernicious things that is happening is that Hamas is, is uh, in some sense, trying to increase that civilian body count. And I just, I don't know that there's an answer to that question. I don't know if you're Israel, if you can have a satisfactory response to Hamas without leading to this kind of bloodshed. You know, it seems that they feel like they're kind of cornered into doing this and, and conducting these military operations in an extremely, extremely crowded territory with, yeah, lots of children. And it's just, it's one of the many horrible choices about this. Again, I think that, you know, you're, you're just, you're starting to see the United States response change a little bit. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting watching the Obama administration and, and what they do, given that support for Israel is obviously really, really high in, in the United States. And given that, uh, you know, Congress has been very supportive of them. And it's it's kind of fascinating. I don't think there's a Gaza solution for reasons I'll talk about in one second. But I do think there's more of a Palestinian option for the Israelis, which is to say, what you want is, if you're Israel, is to be able to tell Palestinians who are mostly who are living in the West Bank, if you play by the rules, if you behave reasonably, we're going to allow you economic opportunities. We're going to make sure you have you have much more freedom of travel, that your property rights are protected, that we're not going to come and take your land and put a settlement there. That if you do good faith efforts in the West Bank, which Netanyahu has absolutely refused to do, but if you do those kinds of good faith efforts in the West Bank, you can perhaps gradually persuade a Palestinian population that you you can be dealt with, that you're a trustworthy ally, and and that Israel and, and the Palestinians, at least as far as the West Bank goes, can coexist and can have a, a mutually acceptable relationship. And hopefully Gaza follows. But Gaza seems to me such an intractable problem because it, Egypt doesn't want it and Israel doesn't want it. It's not an economically viable place. It's basically a gigantic refugee camp plunked on the middle of the Mediterranean and then the desert. It is not a it's not a place that can have a real existence as a state or even as a you know part of a state. So it, it seems to me just a terrible situation. It has, it's overpopulated, and there are too many children are being born, and it's it's just a disaster area. And because Egypt will never take it back, there's no way Israel can see to getting rid of it. 
it's a bad situation there. Yeah, it's one of, one of many. I think I think that's completely correct. It's one of like the many intractable issues here, right? What do you do? What do you do to foster some sort of stability and economic growth there and make the situation stable? I have no idea. I really, honestly, don't. And, and I think comparing it to a refugee situation is is completely correct. Let's close with one final question, which is that notably impotent throughout this whole operation has been the U.S. There have been a series of ceasefire deals, some coming out of Qatar and Turkey, one coming out of Egypt. John Kerry is shuttling away. Why, Jamel, does the U.S. have so little influence at this moment there? The U.S. isn't going to stop supporting Israel. And in the past, we've seen the Netanyahu government sort of have a bit of, if not contempt, then some disdain for the Obama administration and for its officials. And so when you, when you put those two things together, it's like, you know, what reason... What reason do we have to listen or to take these entreaties particularly seriously? It's funny because Israel is such an unusual case in American foreign policy where, you know, the Obama administration has uh, hewed pretty closely to public opinion and just not getting involved in foreign conflicts, despite all of the stuff about why won't Obama lead and, you know, you know, all these implications that his foreign policy is terrible. He's really he's been non-interventionist in in a way that the United States public has become less interventionist as well. But in this case, you know, I think they're really trying. I think Mel's right that it's obvious, you know, which dog they have in the fight. And that's the thing is you have billions and billions and billions of dollars of historical support for the Israeli government. And I think it's a hard pivot for them uh, since that money is already allotted, since that support is already given to kind of come back and say, OK, you know, we, we think that you might be making some strategic mistakes here. I think that's true. $118 billion over the last 60 odd years. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. The GAFAS is sponsored this week by The Great Courses. For most of you, the desire to learn didn't stop after college, and that is the motivation behind The Great Courses, which is, consists of engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors, like the course The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins, which is taught by Ann Curzon of the University of Michigan, a sometime guest on Lexicon Valley, Mike Volo, our producer's podcast. And it's a really interesting class, a bunch of a series of lectures by Professor Curzon about the roots of the English language, how it's changed, how we can use it to trace our culture, historical events that shape it, technological innovations that shape English, and how words are born, how words die, how words get in the dictionary. It's a fascinating class taught by, for anyone who's listened to Lexicon Valley and heard Curzon, a very engaging and fun, delightful lecturer. So you can get that from the great courses, and you can also get more than 500 topics, including history, science, photography, much more. You can watch or listen to these classes anytime, anywhere, and there are no exams. The Great Courses has a special offer for Political GabFest listeners. And if you order The Secret Life of Words, you'll get 80% off the original price. This is available for a limited time only, but it's a huge bargain, 80% off. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash GabFest. That's thegreatcourses.com slash GabFest. Hey, Annie, Jamel, have you heard that Republicans want to impeach President Obama? MSNBC said so. (laughs) Democratic fundraisers say so. They are raising millions of dollars off the fear of this impeachment. And it does seem true that there are a few segments of the conservative base, the South Dakota Republican Party being one such segment, that are actually clamoring to go after the president for his, his alleged high crimes and misdemeanors, his violations of the Constitution, his kingly abrogations of his duty as president. 
But uh, the impeachment craze does appear to be a largely Democratic affair. So, Annie, you've been writing about this. Why are Democrats so excited by it? And is there actually any Republican move to impeach the president? So there has been a kind of Republican move to impeach the president in that you've you've seen uh, leading conservative lights like uh, Sarah Palin pushing for it. You've had a couple of folks in the House pushing for it, Michelle Bachman, those sorts of people. But Republican leadership is just completely allergic to this idea. They know that it wouldn't go anywhere. Just a reminder that for impeachment to happen, it would have to pass the House and then it would have to pass the Senate. So I don't I don't really see a world in which Harry Reid is going to bring up a bill with articles of impeachment. So I'd say that that Barack Obama is pretty safe. And so Democrats have just like jumped on this. And I think very, very cynically. Um, so on Friday, what happened a week ago, Friday, it came up in a press conference, and they said that they were taking it sort of credibly. And there had been a breakfast in which Dan Pfeiffer sort of brought up the, uh, the, the specter of impeachment. And then they fundraise off of it, right? They made million, I think $2.1 million, $1.6 million over the weekend with these ads that, that brought up impeachment. I don't take the threat of impeachment seriously. I think that this is great for Democrats to, to fundraise on because they get to kind of paint Republicans as being unhinged. There's just enough chatter about it on the right uh, that it gives it enough oxygen to keep going. And I know that that folks are saying that somehow all of this talk about impeachment could somehow box Boehner in so that he would have to bring an impeachment bill up. And I guess that crazier things have happened. But it just it seems like such a distant threat to me. I really just don't see it happening. I don't see John Boehner bringing a bill forward, even if his, you know, the the sort of Tea Party caucus was demanding it. I just don't I don't know. But maybe I'm missing something, Jamel. My my instinct is to say that this is all very silly, like you, Annie, that like there's not going to be any, any impeachment. Boehner's not going to bring a bill up. This is all, I think, a totally fair but pretty cynical use of um, a lull in the domestic policy news to sort of like raise money. On the other hand, it is the case that a Democratic president has been impeached by Republicans before, that the last Democratic president faced a not dissimilar Republican, uh, hostile Republican Congress that eventually impeached him. And it is also true that House Republicans have been really aggressive about sort of pushing the boundaries of political norms. And so we have the debt ceiling debacle, we have another government shutdown, we have sort of the temper tantrum approach to Senate procedure by which you don't let the other side do anything, you require votes for everything, you filibuster everything. Again, I I think impeachment is unlikely. I would probably rate it as a little more likely than Annie would just because we are dealing with at least a House Republican caucus that has been willing to embrace radicalism in the past, and I'm not going to rule it out for the future. Yeah, and I guess, you know, to that point, Jamel, what they want to impeach Barack Obama for, it doesn't matter. It's complete piffle, right? right. So they say that he's had sort of executive overreach and, and that he's breaking the Constitution. But look, you know, it was it was yesterday, Thursday, that they tried to pass this immigration bill in the House. Uh, the House failed to pass its own bill. The Republicans split. And in this kind of statement coming out of it, they said, well, why doesn't Barack Obama do something on the executive action front to move forward? And this just this proves that 
July right there, right? You know, they, they there's actually no policy backing for this. And, you know, you can you can argue about the Clinton impeachment, but the guy did some really seriously messed up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I think that the argument that, you know, there's probably some argument about uh, whether Barack Obama should have delayed the employer mandate, which is the one that they're really incensed about. But, you know, I don't think any lawyer could possibly, any constitutional lawyer I've, I've heard has, has thought that he actually, that there's any grounds for impeachment there. Just to clarify one thing you said originally, Annie. So it's certainly true that the president could never get convicted. You need two thirds of vote in the Senate, which would never, ever happen. But impeachment is something the House can do. A House majority could impeach him tomorrow. So the Democrats fundraising off impeachment, you have the House Republicans now yesterday or on Wednesday, I guess they passed a measure call a resolution to uh, move forward with this lawsuit against the president over delaying the employer mandate. And it got me thinking that one of the problems that you have with this Congress and one reason why it's so odd is that these people don't actually seem to have any work to do. So all they spend their time doing are these things which are symbolic. There's no there's no actual labor and how frustrating and bizarre it must be to go to a job. It's like showing up at a job. It's, it's maybe like being a mobster at a job. You show up, there's no, it's a make work job. You, you get to the office, you get paid, you sit around, you have a beer, you go to a fundraiser. Can you imagine what it'd be like to show up? Annie, you just started this new job at New York Magazine. You get there and they're like, well, you don't actually have to write anything. We don't re- need you to write any of these articles for us. We don't want any of the articles passed this year. So let's just, just chill out, go hang out and, and, uh, and talk to your friends. I do. I genuinely think there is some part of the the failure of this Congress that has to do with what happens like zoo animals when you don't have anything to do with yourself. And yeah, my apologies for the for the messing up the the procedure on impeachment there. What's funny is that there's plenty of work for them to do hypothetically. There's all sorts of things that need a legislative fix that they haven't managed to get. The VA is a big issue. There's uh, border security is a big issue. There's immigration. There's all sorts of just kind of regular housekeeping, moving things forward that they should be doing. And they just they don't. They choose to. Right. The structures are set up and the polarization is such that they really can't do anything, right? They can't pass even even fairly basic legislation, or at least they've really struggled to. I think that this Congress is almost certainly going to be the least productive. And I think it's a real question as to whether there needs to be some kind of structural fix for this. I know that, you know, it looks fairly likely at this point that the Senate will flip, in which case I think that you'll start to see a ton of legislative activity. They'll be able to pass things out of the House and the Senate, and then Barack Obama will veto them. So probably the only the only thing that might change there is that it'll get a lot harder for Barack Obama to get his appointments done. And, you know, on judicial appointments, that might be tough. But I think that you'll just see another two years of, of really nothing in which Congress is more productive, but yet less happens, if that makes sense. Right. I'm not sure that it's the polarization that's causing the problems here, because in theory, two people at two polls, there's still a middle there. There's still compromises you can do, even if you have like a libertarian and a social democrat. There are things you can get done. I, I think that what we're seeing with the contemporary Republican Party is sort of an embrace of or a, a not embrace, like a complete rejection of policymaking. The, the sort of like a po- uh, John Bernstein, who's a political scientist who writes for Bloomberg, calls it a post-policy GOP, that it's committed to some abstractions. It's committed to a few concrete outcomes. But by and large, a lot of the members elected recently have no particular policy goals. They're there to stop Barack Obama or they're there 
to protect liberty. But there's no particular programs they want to advance. And so when you have and let me uh, let me revise something. I guess you have a combination of a very polarized uh, congressional GOP and also a congressional GOP that doesn't have much interest in in doing anything concrete. And the, the combination of those two things provides a problem because you can have you can have sort of like a post policy party that's purely interested in just the politics of everything, but doesn't really care about the principles, and thus can will cut deals to do things. This is like Richard Nixon's kind of unprincipled, but interested in doing stuff. Added to that stew is sort of a rejection of, I think, basic norms of governing. Republicans, far more than Democrats, and I think that my my worry, my long-term worry is that frustration will lead Democrats to go down this road as well, but Republicans are simply ejecting the norms that govern legislative behavior in the interest of short-term gain or short-term advantage. Like, my my honest conviction is that if the Senate flips this year, and I'm actually not so not so sure that it will, I think it's kind of a, a coin toss at this point, depending on what happens in a couple red states. But if it flips, I am 100% sure that Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, eliminates the filibuster immediately. In that, you know, in some sense, it's a tit for tat. Democrats eliminated the filibuster on judicial nominations and executive branch nominations. But in another sense, it's just a continuation of this escalation of norms violation that 20 years ago, no one would have done that. It would it would have been unconscionable to do that. That's a sort of crazy rule change right off the bat. But now people are trying to get whatever advantage they can in terms of the rules, and that has a corrosive effect on the ability of anything to happen. Yeah. What's interesting about your theory about McConnell eliminating the filibuster is that would be great for Democrats, right? right. There's uh, So let's, let's imagine that the Senate switches control, and so Republican House, Republican Senate as of January, and McConnell gets rid of the filibuster. They still can't pass anything, right? They're right. S- they're still going to face Barack Obama vetoing virtually everything that they put forward outside of you know regular uh, bills to finance the government. I have to imagine, but as soon as they get control back, right? You know, hypothetically, the chamber should be functioning a lot better. I think that's a world that that Democrats would be really happy with. But maybe I'm missing something. I sort of think that if. At some point, Democrats and Republicans agreed to eliminate the filibuster together. It'd be fine, but it's sort of the the unilateral rule changing. And again, Democrats have engaged in this too, which is why it's so worrisome that after, from you know, my view, a long time of provocation, Democrats are responding with the same kind of hardball. But that can escalate to a pretty dangerous place where there essentially are no more rules. In that the only thing either side does is attempt to get the most advantage it can in, in the short term. Which, I mean, if you're like a total partisan, it's fine. But as far as like the institutional integrity of the United States government, it's probably not the best thing to happen. I am struck dumb by hearing the filibuster defended in this way. I'm shocked by this, Jamel. It is a vestige of a system that, that has stopped functioning. It doesn't work. We need to become a more parliamentary kind of democracy. And the filibuster stands in the way of that. I'm not saying that there aren't nice things about the collegiality of the old ways, but those things are gone. Those are gone. And and we need to move to something where there's where there's a legislature that can actually pass legislation that doesn't have to be at the mercy of, you know, a few random loonies who don't want to make it happen. 
So I'm not a defender of the filibuster per se. I'm sort of more a defender of like, I'm a defender of like the Madisonian vision of government, which is not so much that Congress exists. I mean, obviously, Congress's job is to pass legislation, but Congress's sole job, unlike in a parliamentary system where the only thing anyone ever does is pass legislation, Congress and each individual Congress member also is there to represent their districts and to provide services to their districts and so on and so forth. What the Madisonian system does best is it allows for both. It allows for national action and also for each particular representative to give like particular representation to their districts and to their states. And we're at this point where we've kind of lost both. And it, it seems like it should be possible to have a Congress that can do things and also one that can represent effectively. And right now in this particular situation, getting rid of the filibuster would be a boon. But the problem isn't the filibuster. The problem is like abuse of the filibuster and sort of the erosion of norms. If magically those norms were to like return, you could have the filibuster and, you know, things would still work smoothly. So it's it seems like for as much as I get the frustration with the filibuster and for as much as I'm not really a fan of it because historically it's been used for pretty odious purposes, I don't see it as the problem. So first of all, I I do think that polarization really matters. And I think that it matters primarily on the Republican side, right? There are lots of deals that John Boehner was ready to cut that he couldn't cut because of his own caucus. So that's where I think that that it really matters. There's been this funny shift in, in Washington where people have really changed their opinion about things like congressional pork, right? Um, You start to hear people talk almost wistfully about the time of earmarks because they were a way to sort of like grease the wheels a little bit, right? And since the elimination of of earmarks thing, that's just been one more thing that's been gumming up the works. I mean, I agree with you in the sense that like, you know, if they could act like they did 20 years ago, then the filibuster wouldn't be an issue. But I do think that like on its face, the filibuster is silly and anti-majoritarian, right? And that combined with everything else that's been going on, it's just Congress is completely broken. And the thing I fear is that it's incapable of repairing itself. It's, It's so hard for them to agree to anything rule changes. It's kind of amazing that they even got the filibuster reform that they did. And granted, it was just, you know, it seemed like Harry Reid just woke up one morning and and decided that that was the day that he was going to do it. I I still don't know that I've seen a satisfactory explanation for why it was then that that he decided to make the change. Okay, let's leave it there. A new law in Mississippi, one of, of many such laws that are being passed across the South, would have forced the state's last abortion clinic to close. The the law passed in the guise of for health, but really to stop abortion, required that any abortion provider in the state get admitting privileges at a local hospital. So there's one remaining abortion provider in Jackson, Mississippi, in the in that state, and the doctors at that clinic, or the doctor, either one or two, I'm not sure, applied for uh, admitting privileges at every single hospital in the area, and every single hospital turned them down. So they had no admitting privileges at hospitals. The law says that you need admitting privileges at hospital to provide abortions. Ergo, you can no longer provide abortions. The clinic was on the brink of being shut down when a federal appeals court in Mississippi said this clinic has to stay open because Mississippi cannot shift its burden to other states. It can't simply count on other states to provide this constitutional right to women, the right that women have to to get an abortion under certain circumstances. Um, it's a very small victory for pro-choice forces at a very dark time for them generally. 
let's start with just this particular case and the decision in, in favor of the clinic. So, Annie, why did they get this win? So they, they got this win. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not sure how how much this will stand up and whether there are uh, other similar legal challenges down the road um, would be decided in the same way. But basically, the decision was on the grounds that the states surrounding would have had a disproportionate burden. And you're right that this has been a very, very sort of dark time for reproductive health access because you've seen just this unbelievable patchwork of laws and regulations using all sorts of different angles, all kind of rolling back access, making it harder, making women have to travel further, uh, limiting their options. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting and and not as well understood is that um, this has been so so tough that there's been a great disincentive for doctors and an unwillingness of doctors to learn the procedure. And so you even have fewer providers who are who are even capable and willing to give the procedure to women. And so this is, you know, as as you pointed out, just just sort of one small piece of a very big puzzle. There are now nine southern states, I think, that have passed these laws about admitting privileges. Um, a similar law in Texas, which has gone into effect, has already shut down a whole bunch of abortion clinics there. The thinking is that the state may be reduced to just six abortion clinics in the whole state of Texas, which is, of course, a huge state with women having to drive up to 100 or 200 miles to get to a clinic. On the other hand, the number of abortions in Texas has dropped only 13%, which is what a lot less than people thought. Why do you think that these abortion restrictions have been able to go into effect in so many states without there being a huge backlash? I have to presume that that has to do in part with the fact that the women whose lives are being affected, uh, there's still a tremendous stigma to talking about it. And very often, they're younger, lower income women, I think, who face a, a lot of shame. And I think that it's just not very popular the attempt to cast this as a sort of women's health issue where they should have privacy, where they should have access, and it should be, uh, you know, sort of a private decision. It's become instead this this kind of great political social issue in which, you know, people with a lot of political capital and political power, in no small part, wealthy, older white men are able to make this kind of principled stand against it. And the people who are being affected are largely voiceless. And, you know, they are, are seen as not being terribly sympathetic. And I think what's interesting is that it's coming at the same time that there's a lot of um, opposition to and attempts to restrict access to contraception, which, you know, is it seems to me is, is kind of a, a weird thing about it as well. But Jamal, maybe you have a different sense of the uh, the politics of it. I mean, that that seems about right to me. I mean, there there has been there is a backlash. It's not it's not a huge backlash, but there certainly are. I know in Virginia, which um, last year when Bob McDonald was still governor, um, implemented regulations regarding the dimensions of abortion facilities, like you always have to be this wide, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, and that sparked the backlash in the state. Texas had the very memorable backlash. Um, about this particular abortion law. I think what anti-abortion politicians and activists have on their side is just the fact that there's a lot of plausible deniability here, right? I'd wager that most people aren't really aware of what statistics about abortions will look like. I think when people say abortion, what they imagine in their head is a second trimester abortion. What they Mm -hmm. imagine is aborting a fetus and not the far more common abortions, which are medical abortions of embryos. 
if you are an anti-abortion politician, this is great because you can you can say we want abortion clinics just to be safe, and you can propose and pass these laws. And even if the abortion clinic, the vast majority of its work is providing abortion drugs for early, very early abortions, they're still subject to these rules. And so you can shut them down. And it's hard to communicate that kind of nuance to people because, you know, public opinion is pretty stable on this, actually. Like there's a uh, enduring, depending on your survey, large plurality or majority of Americans who essentially say abortion in the first trimester is, should be completely legal. No, no questions asked. It's only when you get to third trimester abortions that you see public opinion really shift. My honest hunch is that you, you're not going to see a kind of broad-based push for expanded abortion rights until it looks like you know abortion rights are threatened in New York and California as well as Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. Well, this goes back, Jamel, to the point in the, in the previous discussion about the willingness of Republicans, your, your, your claim that this is a Republican party that's no longer interested in policy or interested in, in governing. But that's kind of true at a national level. What's replaced it is this extreme eagerness to govern at a local and state level. And this eagerness manifests itself in, in just incredibly enthusiastic state legislatures that are taking states in very conservative directions. And we see it with reproductive rights most starkly, but in tax policy and in funding for education and in some criminal justice issues. So it's not that the Republican Party as a whole doesn't want to govern. It's that the Republican Party has realized it can govern quite effectively in lots and lots of states because it controls a lot of state legislatures. It's done a very good job of, of winning state legislators. It controls a lot of governor's offices. And that's where we're seeing this manifestation of the, the policy chops of the Republican Party. We had that decision today in Wisconsin where the Wisconsin, the right for public employees to uh, collectively bargain has is now uh, gone in Wisconsin. The state Supreme Court said that Scott Walker's law can stand. So there is the, it's not the Republican Party doesn't want policy. It just wants to execute policy at a different level than the national level. I think that that's right. And I, I, I think that you see sort of interesting examples on the liberal side of the spectrum as well. So most notably with the minimum wage, where you've seen state and local governments really aggressively move to when it was clear that the federal government wasn't going to raise the minimum wage to, to raise it themselves. And I think that you, especially given that states are allowed to opt out of the Medicaid expansion in the ACA, I agree that you're see, seeing tremendous polarization interesting polarization in state policies. And I actually haven't seen sort of anybody quantify this, but I'd be curious to know if there's any way to measure how different, presuming that it's it's true that it's happening, how much more different states have become on a lot of these axes, on economic policy, on education policy, on health and health access. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't seen anything like that either. I mean, you know, off the top of my head, First, accounting for the fact that you have areas of the country, most notably the South, that have always been sort of just very different policy-wise mm -hmm. than the rest of the country. I can think of a few like immediate, you know, really widely divergent states like Kansas over the last couple of years has gone on a really tremendous experiment of public policy. Mm -hmm. um, Governor Brownback is currently under a lot of fire for his attempt to phase out income taxes entirely and replace them with cuts to public services and with greater sales taxes, which is sort of a policy that has been attempted in Louisiana as well under Governor Jindal, and that has really high right-wing pedigree. But you know, outside of those examples, I can't think of 
Oh, North Carolina is the other one, right? North Carolina is the other state that took a dramatic right-wing turn. But that's sort of outside of those three, maybe that's just the most publicized, but outside of those three, I'm not sure that the shifts have been um, sort of like uniformly dramatic among red states and blue states other than for things like the Medicaid expansion where there is a large and measurable difference in insurance rates. I think Mississippi just it just came down that Mississippi's uninsurance rate has gone up over the last year. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's going up about 3%. And what's, what's sort of startling is that the, the next poorest state in the union, West Virginia, ha- which has expanded Medicaid and, and embraced the ACA, its uninsurance rate went down 10 points. So right there you have sort of like a direct comparison, a very startling. And when you think about the, the human cost in Mississippi, like a really depressing example. But Wisconsin, Indiana. Those are states with huge experiments on the right, but I will, let's leave it. (laughs) One final question, which is the premise of this decision by the Fifth Circuit as it related to the Mississippi abortion clinic was that essentially Mississippi couldn't shift the burden to these other states to provide abortion. But that did leave me with a curious question, which is if a constitutional right to, to something exists, in this case, the constitutional right to abortion under certain circumstances, if that exists... Is it the obligation of every state to have to provide that service? It, let's say there was an island off the coast of of uh, Alaska without an abortion clinic. Is there an obligation that the state provide abortion in that situation? I don't. I don't quite see how it is that the state has to provide something just because the government says it is a constitutional right. It's interesting. And I mean, there's parts of the country, I know that pro-choice groups put out these maps, right, that show the hours that you would have to drive in order to access uh, reproductive health services, including abortion. And it's just hours and hours and hours, right? It's a big, 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 big country. And this is has been part of the problem is that very often these are young women with very low incomes. So to actually go and get an abortion, if you have, for instance, a three-day waiting period or some sorts of fees, it becomes, you know, that much more inaccessible. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's really fascinating playing out the the legal logic implied by this by this one decision um, about whether ultimately this is seen as a service that the state should have the responsibility of providing access. Yeah, my my instinct is to say that states do. I mean, if, if you have the right to something but no way to access it, no way to actualize it, then effectively you don't really have the right to it. I mean, this is this is the situation of the South for most of the 20th century, that black Americans had a legal right to vote, but no way to actually actualize it. And so for all intents and purposes, they had no right to vote. And so if we're going to take seriously the idea that women have a right to an abortion under certain circumstances, then states have an obligation to at least ensure that they're not in an environment where abortions become overly burdensome to access. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are um, boozing with your loved ones, as I know both of you will be doing, as you're constantly doing. What are you going to be chattering about? Jamel? I will probably be talking about a book I've now reread. I'm on my third reread in like the last two months. Um, it's called A Canticle for Leibowitz. It's an old science fiction book from 1959, I think. And it's just a friend recommended it to me. Um, the, the premise is it's hundreds of years into the future. There is nuclear war. Society is rebuilding itself. It kind of takes place in the middle of the United States. And it's just honestly the most interesting and sort of captivating science fiction book I've ever read. It sort of deals with religion and, and science in a very still kind of novel way trying trying to wrestle with the obligations they both have to each other 
and what happens when technological progress becomes unhinged from any sense of moral responsibility. And it's also just kind of a, a fun story, like funny characters. It's like an extremely well-written book. But I've reread it twice on my third time because I'm really just sort of like entranced by it. So that's what I'll be talking about. And my girlfriend will be very sad about it. <laughs> that's awesome. And I love that book. And it's it's great because it's like an <laughs> urtext, right? And I feel like I only read it recently, too. I read it in the past year that all of a sudden you see echoes of it everywhere else. It's like it's like as if you only read Shakespeare as an adult or something. And all of a sudden you see like the words and the phrases right. that show up over and over again. So I have I have a very wonky cocktail chatter, which is something I've been thinking a lot about, which is it was only in the past year that Russia was named a high-income country officially by the World Bank. And so they've, they've gone and they've really economically shot themselves in the foot with this whole Ukraine mess. So my question is whether they're going to get downgraded back to middle-income status <laughs> if they if they kind of keep it up. Because it now looks like, you know, the sanctions are really serious against them. There's kind of no end in sight. And, and it seems clear that the way that the United States and Europe is intent on punishing Russia for its aggression in Ukraine is uh, through economic means primarily. My chatter is, uh, I don't know if this is gloomy or cheery or what. There was a great obituary this week for Dutch Van Kirk. Dutch Van Kirk is the last surviving crew member of the Enola Gay, which was the plane that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. He was a navigator on that plane. It was a 12-man crew. I think they all survived the war, I believe. I could be wrong about that. He had a very honorable service, and then after after the war, he went on to he went on to a very post World War II career as a middle manager for Dupont, I think, a marketing executive for Dupont, but had you know had done this astonishing, horrible, amazing feat as a as a, a bomber navigator in the war, and and he remained um, through his life, he remained utterly convinced that this was the right thing to do. That you know, although. He knew the effect was terrible, and his description of watching the the bomb drop, you know, was truly infused with horror. But they also the the sense that it was a morally defensible position, and that was a view that he never shook through his whole life. And just losing that, uh, you know, we're, we're at the World War One anniversary, so we're this consciousness that no one is alive today who remembers that war is is with us. And as we exit, as, as World War Two gets further and further in the distance, we are losing the people who remember that. In the same way, and this was a an interesting a moment of, of of a lost time. The Gamfa is produced by Mike Vola, our intern is Max Tawney. Our executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. You can email us at gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. The comments and ratings really help us. I've noticed that the gist, Mike Pesca's new show, is catching up to us in comments and ratings, which is demoralizing to me because we have a lot more listeners. So please go and leave a comment and rating. It also helps us in the iTunes rankings. For Annie Lowry of New York Magazine and Jamel Bowie of Slate, I'm David Plotz. We will be back with you next week. I think John and Emily will be back. But if not, I'll just call Annie and Jamel again. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 